uh, those two facts are related. Um, I, I was there in England for the equivalent of years eight and nine, and I don't remember how, but I found myself in the school choir. Uh, and it was a big choir. It included teachers as well as students. And in this particular school, if you were in the school choir, then you were in the school choir. I mean, it wasn't a matter of choice. If the music master told you were in, then you were in. End of discussion. And that meant that you attended lunchtime choir practice three times a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, I think, from memory, every week, all year. And through the year, especially at Christmas time and Easter times, there were performances, and, and they were big events. Now, if you'd asked me at the time, I would have told you that I hated being in the school choir. And I would have told you that because that was the standard answer, you know, because nobody liked being in the school. It wasn't cool. Um, also, of course, obviously, I missed out on 60% of my lunch times through all of year eight and nine. But actually, I didn't hate it. Um, actually, I loved it. Um, we, we, we sang Handel's Messiah and we sang sacred choral music by Vivaldi and much else besides. I, I grew used to singing in Latin and I knew a lot of this music by heart. And actually, I loved it because um, I, I, I love singing and I learned to love singing in that choir. Um, when I went to Bible college in the year 2001, um, four days a week... For four years, this was my daily routine. Lectures started at 9 a.m. and finished at 10 a.m. And then we went to chapel from 10 a.m. to 10.50. And then we went to morning tea from 10.50 to 11.15. And then from 11.15 to 1 p.m. we had more lectures. Then we had lunch. Um, after lunch, there were no lectures. We all hit the library. And uh, as I may have already said in, in one or two sermons along the way, I, I just love that daily routine. I, I just thought that was a foretaste of heaven. It was great. It was a wonderful mix of solitary reading, of group discussion and group learning. Everybody at morning tea together, which is, after all, the mark of a civilized society. <laughs> Corporate and individual prayer. But th there were many things about that lifestyle that I loved, but perhaps the most unusual thing about that lifestyle, the thing that made it so very, very different to what my friends and family were doing in their workplaces in the middle of the day, the thing that was so unusual was this. I sang every day. Corporate singing, hymns, choruses, spiritual songs in the chapel, I sang every day. And it was wonderful. And I knew it at the time that it was wonderful to sing every day. It's a wonderful thing to sing every day. Um, I, I think also, again, I, I, I beg your pardon, I may have mentioned this in another sermon, um, the fact that next door to Ridley College, where I was studying, uh, doing my Bible studies, um, next door to Ridley College is St. Andrew's Hall, which is uh, the residential training college for CMS, the Church Missionary Society. And at St. Andrew's Hall, you have families, you have couples, you have, you have single people, uh, all living in community, studying and worshipping together as they prepare for cross-cultural overseas mission service, preparing to be missionaries. 
And uh, I remember once a conversation that I had at that time with the principal of St. Andrew's Hall. And uh, he'd actually just been speaking to one of his cleaning staff. And that person wasn't a Christian. Um, But that person had said to him that the most amazing and lovely thing about doing the cleaning at St. Andrew's Hall, the thing that made their job distinct and different there, was that at St. Andrew's Hall, there was always singing. People were singing as they, as they did their clothes washing or singing as they did veggie prep and did, did dinner preparation or singing as they, they did the dishes, singing everywhere. And the cleaner loved that, to work in a singing environment. Well, singing is, is, is something that comes naturally to human beings, uh, like sneezing and coughing, like laughing and crying, all human beings sing. And apparently, just like laughing and crying, singing is actually very good for you. It is an accepted scientific fact that people who sing are more likely to be happy because singing elevates levels of certain neurotransmitters in the brain that are associated with pleasure and well-being. So if you're feeling depressed, you should definitely join a choir. Well, it's, it's worth stopping to think about singing uh, today. And we're going we're to think about singing for, for two reasons. One reason is that most Australians actually, most Aussies actually do very, very, very little singing. For the vast majority of Aussies, perhaps the only singing we'll do is happy birthday to you a handful of times through the year. Now, if you're passionate about footy, or you're a member of your local Rotary Club, then you might sing a little bit more. But most Aussies hardly ever sing at all. But Christians sing. Um, whether here, whether you attend the Saturday 4 p.m. service or the Sunday 8.30 a.m. service or here now at the 10.15 a.m. service, these three services with three very different musical styles The first thing you do once you come in and you make a start, the first thing you do is stand and sing. And, you know, we announce that each week as though it was the most natural and obvious thing to do, that obviously we should commence our business here this morning together by singing. But it is, of course, obviously when you think about it, that's a very odd thing to do from the perspective of our home culture. I mean, if you were, you know, if you had going to attend a board meeting, you wouldn't start by singing. Uh, if you're visiting a client or you know, a, a patient walks into your consulting room, you wouldn't say, let's stand and sing. And actually, when, when the church growth experts start talking about putting on seeker-friendly services to invite people you know, who are not Christians, but they might want to know, when, when, we, when the experts talk about that, the first thing they say is, the first piece of advice is, cut the singing. It's a culturally odd thing to do. Just make people feel uneasy. Given that we have no intention of cutting the singing, why is it important? Well, that was my first thing to think about. Aussies do very little singing. That leads me into my second point, and that is, why is it important? And um, uh, it's worth thinking about singing this morning, because actually, as you may have already noticed, our text from Exodus is full of singing. 
And last week, we read together one of the most exciting and extraordinary passages in the whole Bible, Exodus chapter 14. God saves the Israelites from Pharaoh and his army. Parting the Red Sea, God brings the Israelites through on dry ground, but the pursuing Egyptian army, the waters overwhelm them, coming back, and they all drown. Now, with respect to the story itself, it is a drama of incredible tension with the most extraordinary, totally amazing climax. And with respect to God's miracles, it is one of the most famous in all history. It's a staggering display of his glory. It is a staggering demonstration of his full sovereignty over all of the powers of evil and chaos. It is an extraordinary display of his grace towards his undeserving people who have been chosen because they have been chosen. And it's, it's, it's a frightening display of his wrath on the wickedness of those who rebel against him. It's, it's amazing. As, as we noted last time, we see how actually in the story, both Pharaoh and the Israelites are faithless. With respect to Pharaoh, his faithlessness leads to his destruction. With respect to the Israelites, their faithlessness leads to their correction. God is teaching his people faith, what it means. And he's teaching his people faith through the faithful witness and intercession of his servant Moses. That day, the Israelites saw God's power to save and his power to destroy. Verse, uh, sorry, uh, chapter 14 ends with this verse, verse 31. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. That's how chapter 14 ends. They are learning faith. They are learning to believe God's promises, to understand that he has the power and the will to keep his promises. They are learning to trust in his character and in his word. And they are learning to live differently in response. Faith. But the story is not over. Moses bursts into song. And the people of Israel follow his lead, singing to the Lord. Now, the the music has not been preserved for us. Perhaps that's just as well. But the lyrics have been preserved. And Tim read them to us this morning. These lyrics express several things at once. The song tells of what actually happened. Historically, what happened, the song preserves the facts of the matter, although, of course, as you'd expect with the song, the language is vivid and poetical. The song celebrates this as the fulfillment of ancient promises made to the patriarchs. The song looks forward to what God will do in the future, also in line with those same promises. 
The song celebrates God's attributes, not just his awesome power and might, but also his holiness, his majesty, his glory, and his unfailing loving kindness. The song declares the full sovereignty of God. The Lord reigns everywhere and forever. And therefore, the song is a call. The song is an invitation. It's, it's, it's asking others to respond to who God is with repentance and faith. But most fundamentally of all, the song is an expression of thanks and praise. That's what it is basically. It's an expression of thanks and praise. The saving work of God has given rise to faith, and out of faith springs praise. And the form of praise is singing. Um, in, in this age of um, militant Islam and jihad and violence in the name of religion, violence that is, of course, by no means limited to Islam. In, in this age of violence in the name of religion, it's worth stopping to acknowledge that the way in which this song glorifies a battle victory may be disturbing, particularly if you're perhaps new to the book of Exodus or perhaps if you're new to the Christian faith. Verse 3, after all, says, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. And in the Hebrew, it's literally something along the lines of Yahweh, the man of war. Yahweh is his name. Yahweh, of course, being a name, the Lord being a title. Um, Yahweh, the man of war. Yahweh is his name. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, presents himself and on occasions is celebrated to be a warrior. That's part of God's being. And in order to gauge what this means, that God is a warrior, I think it's worth remembering at least three things. Firstly, it's, it's worth remembering that whenever God acts in judgment in history, whenever he acts as a warrior, it is always to restore justice and righteousness to human affairs that have gone severely, badly wrong. It is in the restoration of justice and truth and righteousness that he acts to judge that he comes as warrior. This song celebrates the destruction of evil, the destruction of injustice, the destruction of a brutal and oppressive regime such that a whole nation of people found freedom and justice. Secondly, while the victory against evil in this instance meant the loss of a very great number of human lives, Pharaoh and his entire army, including 600 super chariots, an uncountable number of normal chariots, horsemen, foot soldiers, generals, we looked at it last week, a vast army, this is not the loss of innocent lives. Th those men weren't innocent. Each and every single one of them had the opportunity to repent 
and to put their trust in God and to turn away from evil. All of these people, the entire Egyptian nation, had seen the ten plagues. And many of them understood Yahweh reigns supreme. He's going to be the victor. And the Exodus book is explicit about this, that as the Hebrews came out of Egypt, many Egyptians joined them. Um, And in the animated feature film, Prince of Egypt, they portray this beautifully by actually, it's subtle, it's in the background. But at one point, as the the Hebrews are coming out in 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 the... um, animated film, if you've, if you've seen it, if you haven't, please do, it's great, Prince of Egypt, um, you see soldiers actually just dropping their weapons and jo- joining in. We know that that happened. Um, God never brings judgment without ample, ample warning and opportunity to repent. Thirdly, the fact that the God of the Bible is obviously big enough to handle his own enemies, discourages human violence in the name of God. Yes, it's true. For particular reasons, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel briefly could pick up the sword in God's name. But since the coming of Christ, it is impossible to bear the sword in God's name. It doesn't matter who you are, it is impossible to bear the sword in God's name. It is, of course, possible to bear the sword in the name of the state, but that's a different discussion for a different day. But it is impossible to bear the sword in God's name. Jesus taught clearly that God will disown the person who thinks he or she can use the weapons of, his, of this age in his service. And since Jesus, we see clearly the true issue, that our real enemy is spiritual, not human. And that we are called to do battle against the spiritual enemy and to love the human enemy and to not get those two things confused, even though we frequently do. God, as a warrior, is passionate about the destruction of evil. And humanity just simply has to decide whose side they want to be on. Well, enough of that. Um, That was a digression. This is a sermon about singing. So uh, let's think about singing. Well, from the beginning of time to the end of history, the Bible shows us that singing is the usual response to God's saving work in history. God told Job out of the whirlwind. God told Job, uh, book of Job, I think chapter 47 or 48, I've forgotten, but God told Job that right at the beginning when the earth's foundations were being laid, the morning stars sang together while the angels shouted for joy, which is actually two different ways because he's speaking poetically. It's two different ways of describing the same thing. There 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 were sentient beings singing in praise of God when the physical universe was created at the dawn of time. And when all things are fulfilled at the end of history and all evil finally defeated, again, God's people and God's angels will sing. And in between the beginning and the end, again and again and again, 
When people witness or experience God's saving grace, they sing. And they all sing in one form or another a song which is known as Moses' song. The song of Moses. This is what God has done in history. This is what it means. He has become my salvation. Praise him for who he is and what he does. For the Lord reigns forever and ever. Five elements of the song of Moses. This is Moses' song. This is David's song. This is Mary's song. This is Zechariah's song. This is Jesus' song. And this is our song too. Uh, returning to last, um, um, sorry, returning to today's text, Exodus 15. The song is followed by what is meant, I think, I believe, verse 19, I think that's meant to be the song's title. For some reason, it's put at the end of the song rather than the beginning, but we have the title there. And then we move into a short description of what Miriam does. Miriam is Moses' sister. Moses was the youngest of three, all born to their father Amram and their mother Jochebed. Aaron is the eldest. Miriam is the middle child. Nothing wrong with that. And Moses is the youngest. Uh, in the passage, Miriam, Miriam according to uh, Jewish convention, Miriam is linked to her oldest, closest male relative, which turns out to be her brother, Aaron. That tells us straight away that her father has died, and that she's not married. Otherwise, she would be Miriam daughter of or Miriam wife of. But she's linked to Aaron, her eldest brother. She's not married. Um, probably uh, she never married. Perhaps she's a widow with no children. Um, what else are we told about Miriam? We're told Miriam is a prophet. She is the second person in the Bible to be described as a prophet. The first person, of course, being Abraham. We have Abraham and then Miriam. While most named prophets... I'm sure it will be all right. Whilst most uh, named prophets in the Old Testament are men, female prophets appear from time to time without any suggestion, without the slightest hint that the office of prophet is in any way a male-only prerogative. Other female named prophets of the Old Testament include, of course, Deborah the judge and Huldah, who lived in Jerusalem in the days of Josiah, but there are others too. Now, a prophet in the Old Testament is essentially someone who has been filled with the Spirit of God and on that basis knows God personally and on that basis is able to represent Him accurately. God reveals Himself to His prophet in the Old Testament in many and in various ways, but usually by speaking audibly to them. And they, in turn, represent God to others. That is, that is broadly speaking, the heart of prophetic ministry. Prophetic ministry represents God to people. 
priestly ministry represents people back to God. And often those two ministries are combined. But broadly speaking, that is the distinction between a prophetic ministry and a priestly ministry. Prophetic role and a priestly role. Um, Moses, uh, later on in the book of Numbers, in response to something, he's going to express his desire that all of God's people were prophets. Oh, how I wish, he says, all of God's people were prophets. I wish that God would put his Holy Spirit on all of them. And actually, much later in history, the prophet Joel, himself a prophet, he prophesies a time when God would indeed pour out his Spirit on every single one of his servants, on all of his people, both men and women, boys and girls, and they would prophesy. And you know what? We live in that time. That age began some 1,986 years ago on the day of Pentecost described in the book of Acts chapter 2. To be a Christian then is to be a prophet. Male or female, man or woman, boy or girl, to be a Christian is to be someone who has been filled with the Spirit of God and on that basis has met Jesus personally and is able to represent him accurately. Now, uh, if you'll forgive me, as, as is frequently the case, Um, The Bible uses the same word in different ways in different places. And the word prophet is used in a variety of different ways in a variety of different places. And there is in the New Testament a distinct and new prophetic ministry that not all Christians share. In other words, all Christians are called to live a prophetic life. But there is a new prophetic ministry that not all Christians share but some do in the New Testament. This ministry is different to the ministry of the Old Testament prophets. That ministry came to its fulfillment in Jesus. The new prophetic ministry is quite different, and it's described for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, described by Paul. This new prophetic ministry is not shared by all Christians, But it is available to all Christians by way of a gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of prophecy. And again, the New Testament records many women as prophesying and being prophets of this type. Perhaps most notably, the four daughters of Philip were all prophets. So that's a bit about prophecy. Let's return to Miriam. Um, You know, this is the only place where Miriam is described as being a prophet. So obviously, she's about to do a prophetic thing. What does she do? She grabs a musical instrument and she forms a choir. All the women followed her, singing the same song as Moses, or at least a refrain. It could have been both. It could be that that's just abbreviated. It could be that they sang just the refrain. It could be that that what the author is telling us is that they sang the whole song again. Um, And on the basis of that, again, we don't know, but many assume that the first song was Moses and the men folk, the men of Israel, 
and, and then Miriam leads the women in response to them. Now, we don't know that that's happened, but it fits the text. It, it's, it's consistent with it, but not demanded by it. Um, the, that vision of things, if it, it is what happened, that vision of things uh, would have been the cultural norm, we think, that men and women would have worshipped together, but in single gender groups, men on one side, women on another. We don't know what that, that's happened, but it, it fits the description. Okay, so Miriam grabs a musical instrument, forms a choir. How is that prophetic? It is prophetic because it declares the things of God to the rest of creation. It represents him accurately, who he is, how he is to be known, what he's going to do in the future, and how to respond with thanks and praise. That's how it's prophetic. Why does it have to be singing? Well, actually, the Bible doesn't know the answer. Well, the Bible doesn't give the answer to that question, why it has to be singing. Um, But many have uh, thought about that question over the years, and basically everybody's answer is kind of points in the same direction. That, That singing is powerful for these reasons. Firstly, singing is a vehicle that expresses words that are central and core to our being. Singing is the expression of that which is most central. Now, I've got to tell you, I I love cars and I love birds of prey, but I don't want to sing about them. I just don't. That would be silly. I love Jesus and I do want to sing about him. Singing expresses something which is core and central. But secondly, singing expresses something that is head felt as well as heart felt. In other words, singing engages both the intellect and the emotions. And that's wonderful thing about singing. Thirdly, singing makes the content of the song memorable, easy to remember. A melody makes poetry easier to recall. When we, when we learn a song, we learn it by heart. I mean, we all struggled in primary school to learn poetry. It's hard work. Some didn't. All right. Uh, we all struggle to learn poetry, but try keeping teenagers from not learning songs. Um, you know, we all just picked up those songs and knew the lyrics backwards. Um, singing makes learning the content, learning a poem easier. Fourthly, singing unites us as a group, a shared group, a shared experience, a shared song. It's powerful, maybe even the most powerful expression of community belonging. And any organization that needs to foster a very strong sense of community belonging, be it a church, a football club, or a rotary club, will use singing to foster that experience of community belonging. These four things then, combined, make singing a powerful and prophetic thing. When God's people sing together of their Lord and Savior, singing and thanks and praise, it is a forecast of the future. It is a foretaste of heaven. It's what we're going to be doing when we get there. And therefore, when we sing about Jesus, we are demonstrating what it means to be truly human. 
In um, First Chronicles chapter 25, we read about a guy called uh, Jeduthun, who, with his six sons, prophesied in the temple in Jerusalem in the days of King David. They prophesied, it says, quote, using the harp in thanking and praising the Lord, unquote. Singing, in other words, thanking and praising God, that's prophetic. In the book of Revelation, chapter 19, we read that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. The heart of prophecy is pointing to God as he is seen most perfectly and most clearly in the face of Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior. Who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will do. Therefore, there is something incredibly powerful happening when we use musical instruments in thanking and praising the Lord Jesus, in declaring his victory over Satan at the cross, his victory over death at the tomb, his lordship over all creation in his ascension, and that he will reign forever and ever. Amen. So then, therefore... Let's, let's let the message about Jesus sit deep in our hearts. Let, let it sit there in our hearts as we teach and encourage each other with all wisdom, using psalms and hymns and other types of spiritual songs. I'm quoting Paul, by the way, from Colossians. Um, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts to the glory of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's do that. You might want to respond to today's message by perhaps... Joining the choir or resolving to practice your musical instrument more or by seeing Rowan about joining the music ministry of this church or by asking the Holy Spirit for a new ministry gift such as the gift of prophecy or perhaps by asking Jesus into your heart, into the core of your being for the first time. If you haven't done that before, and you'd like to become a Christian this morning. Um, I think if it's the first three, I can't help you all that much, but if it's the last one or the second last one that interests you, then please, by all means, see me at the conclusion of the service. The Lord be with you.